Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sean Michael Crane, welcome to Inside Out. Awesome. Thank you, Billy. Appreciate you having me here. Yeah, man. Okay, so let's dive right in. Tell me about your Uncle Mike. Why is he so important to you? Love the question, man. Right off the bat, perfect question. He he is an amazing person. You know, I've never met anyone like him in my life. He was the most selfless, unconditionally loving person I've ever come across. And early on in childhood, he was the person who had the the biggest impact on my life and how I really developed as a young person in this world. So it was his love, his behavior, everything about him that I I picked up on. And I was able to model that behavior later on in life, or it just really helped me to, to connect with a, you know, like a true and, and genuine, authentic version of myself because of those qualities and traits that he instilled into me early on in life. Mm. When did you realize that? I mean, did you realize it at the time or is it as you reflect later in life that you really realized it? Yeah, great question. I realized it in the most pivotal moment of my life, in the darkest scariest moment of my life when I was incarcerated in the cell with nothing. You know, I was reflecting on my life often at that time, trying to figure out what went wrong. How did I end up here? And I realized early on that I had, you know, gone down a different path than I was supposed to go down. I was a fun, vibrant, you know, child full of life and excitement. And at one point I went down a much darker path and I was reflecting on that. And I realized that's not who I am. That's not the person at my core that I truly feel connected to. I truly feel connected to that kid full of love, that kid that Uncle Mike, you know, instilled those characteristics and traits into through his behavior. And tapping back into that young boy in a cell with nothing brought me back to life. Mm. Hey, man, like you, I loved baseball growing up, wanted to be a Dodger, wanted to go all the way to the majors and, you know. I appreciate what sports and athletics could do for a child. I have a nine-year-old boy right now, and you talk about your nine-year-old birthday. Can you talk a little bit about why that moment was significant and stands out in your mind as you blew out your birthday candles as a nine-year-old? Yeah, I'll never forget that moment. I actually got chills as you just explained that. And I can see it perfectly. I was in my backyard. We were at a little table. My friends and family were there, and I was blowing out the candles. And in that moment, I could see my truth as clear as day. There was no doubt. There was no fear. It was the truth that was placed in my heart that I love baseball. I'm so alive when I'm playing. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. There was no limitations there. There was no what ifs. There was no restrictions holding me back. And I was just feeling and living so freely. So for me to be able to reflect on that is empowering because I think that we all have that truth. And oftentimes as children, it's very clear to us. But at some point, maybe a little later on around 11 and 12 when we become very self-conscious and self-aware. And then later on in life, when that fear and doubt can grow stronger, there's a disconnect there. We lose touch with that kid, that person that knew his truth and wanted to pursue it with everything he had. So for me, I, I always tap back into that because it's the energy and the mindset that I had as a kid that I want to embody today. Mm. 
That's powerful, man. And I want to go into that a little bit later and talk a little bit about how we can channel our inner child and think back. Cause I think to your point, that innocence is lost at some point. I want to flash forward a few more years to you're about 14 and you have something happen with your father where he asked you for a clip to his gun. And I know that was a pivotal point in your life. Can you share a little bit about what happened there and why it was so frankly alarming, but also impactful to your life? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the first moments that I was really faced with, you know, fear and chaos at home. I saw my dad in a a state that I had never seen him before. And that was extremely intoxicated from alcohol to the point where his facial expressions, his demeanor, everything about him was different than I had ever seen. And so I was scared and I felt like my world was turned upside down in that moment. And he was asking me to get a clip to his gun. You know, he was drunk and there was a confrontation at home and he was going to use that gun to intimidate somebody um, or worse. And I didn't want to do it. And I was just gripped by fear in that moment, pleading with him, crying for him not to proceed with this type of behavior. I was trying to reason with him. And I reluctantly went and got that clip. I got it. And, you know, this was symbolic of my relationship with my father for many years, not wanting to demonstrate a certain behavior, knowing something that that was wrong, but going forward with it anyway, because we had that type of relationship and, you know, we were codependent later on in life. So I went and grabbed that clip and it escalated to the point where the cops came to our house and we were actually out on the street and we had left the home out of fear of what might happen. My siblings and I and my uncle Mike and my dad came racing down the street in his car to try to leave. And the cops blocked the the street with their cars and pulled guns out. And we happened to be parked right there. So I saw the whole incident and I'm, you know, 14 years old, still very young and naive at that, at at that age. And I thought I was about to see my dad shot dead in the street in front of us. That's the image that was, I was just preparing for. And it was traumatic. It was traumatic to see that. And from that moment on, you know, my dad didn't go to, to get shot. He was arrested and sent to prison, but my whole world turned upside down. It was like in the blink of an eye, in one moment, in less than an hour, my whole world turned from sunny and, you know, beautiful to dark gray and scary. Yeah, I know you're in uh, Santa Barbara, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And yet here you are, a 14-year-old kid going through this experience. And let's face it, we are a product of our experiences throughout our lives, both as a child and even as an adult, we're a product of our experiences. So your dad goes to prison, your mom abandons you to your, to your, you know, own admission and your own story. How does your dad's arrest, your mom's abandonment inform or influence the teenager that you were at the time and the decisions that you made going forward? Yeah, that was such an impactful month for me. You know, I lost my father in the blink of an eye. And then shortly after I lost my mother to, you know, the streets, she became unraveled and her addiction consumed her. And I was heartbroken. I mean, here I am growing up, like you said, in one of the most beautiful places in the world, going to the beach and seeing these amazing sunsets. And life was so vibrant and exciting. And in the blink of an eye, it just turned cold and dark on me. And at that young age, I didn't know how to cope with that. I couldn't believe that this was my life, that this was reality at that point. So 
I started doing whatever I could to escape that reality, that truth. And that meant not going to school. It meant not coming home because I didn't want to be reminded of what had transpired the previous couple of years. And it, then I started numbing myself with marijuana, alcohol, pills, and then anything I can get my hands on. I realized, wow, for a moment, I don't have to feel that pain, you know, that heartache that was just eating me alive. I can escape it momentarily, but it never went away. It was just within festering, you know, and wreaking havoc on me internally. So I became a full-blown drug addict and alcoholic by the time I was 15. And every day I sought to numb myself. That was my main focus and my main goal is how can I get high or altered to the point where I don't have to face reality. Mm. So then I would imagine that the people that you hang out with have a role on your life because when you when you're partying, when you're doing drugs, you know, you you surround yourself with other people who are doing the same thing and one of the things that you've talked about is the two most powerful external source forces we have in our lives are the relationships we have and the company we keep. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important and how that principle has applied in your own life? Yeah, very much so. Um, when it comes to the company that we keep, you know, I sought to surround myself with kids who are going through what I was going through, who I could relate to. I wasn't going to go and hang out with the kids from the baseball team I grew up with because, you know, they all had these great home lives. They all had parents. They were doing good in school. They were going to school. They were happy. And I couldn't relate to them. For me to go and hang out with them, I would have felt ostracized. I would have felt uh, ashamed and I wouldn't have been able to be my true self around them. And they probably would have accepted me. But I was so ashamed of what was going on at home that I didn't want to be seen by people who I knew earlier in life. So I started hanging out with kids that I could relate to who came from broken homes, who were smoking weed, who were drinking, because that's what I was doing. And we fed off each other. We enabled each other. Um, we enticed each other. And it, it didn't help my situation by any means. It kept me stuck or even led me down that dark path even more so. So then with the relationships, you know, the reason I mentioned relationships is because even when it comes to people in our home, people that we're close to, like our parents, if those relationships are damaging us, right, that we need to be able to identify that and remove ourselves from those relationships or create boundaries. But when I was 15 and 16, I didn't realize this. I just knew that this is my dad and I love him. So even if he's causing me emotional distress, even if the cops are coming to arrest him, even if he's causing me physical or psychological harm, I'm going to still maintain that relationship. And that codependent relationship really, you know, hampered my growth as an individual and devastated me throughout my adolescence. Mm. Well, let's face it. Our parents are primary role models and you had role models in your life that showed you a path that ultimately you, you followed to a degree in terms of your own alcohol and drug abuse, which then led to you hanging out with people who kind of stoked those flames uh, to your point, you could have hung out with the baseball crew. They probably would have accepted you, which is the irony. They you, you thought maybe they wouldn't, but they probably would have, but maybe you didn't feel comfortable. And so at age 23, something happens, which I share a little bit in the intro, but can you talk a little bit about what happened that put you behind bars? Yeah. So fast forward from 14 to 23, going down that same dark path 
right? Wasting my life away, watching as my dreams just slip away and really losing my identity in the process. You know, 10 years battling drug and alcohol addiction, 10 years of just going through the motions and living carelessly. And, you know, after high school, I ended up working for a family company and I was providing a decent life for myself. You know, I wasn't excelling. I wasn't embodying the person at heart I wanted to be, but I wasn't homeless. I wasn't imprisoned yet, not physically, but mentally, I was very much a prisoner of my habits, of my addictions, of my limiting beliefs. And so I had a, a really tough breakup with my girlfriend at the time at 23. We were living together and we had a pretty decent life. And when that happened, everything from the past just surfaced tenfold. You know, my mom leaving, my dad going to prison, my broken home, my shattered dreams, now this heartache. And it all just converged in a way that I could not handle. So I went into my addiction heavier and more full blown than ever before pills every day, alcohol every day, even before work. I was like on a death march, you know, is the way I describe it. And so this led me to going back out to parties and socializing with old friends and just going full blown back into that old lifestyle that I'd kind of been pulling myself away from. And that night I was on the Mesa, which is a really beautiful area of Santa Barbara, right on the coast, beautiful homes overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And we were at a big party. I didn't really know a lot of people there. So I was socializing with a small group that I had acquaintances with, and we had connections through various friends. So it was a group of guys that I had never hung out with before. And at some point in the night, as we're drinking, socializing, talking, uh, they get into an argument with another group of individuals that I'd never seen before in my life. So after that argument dies down, we go back to partying, socializing, and drinking. And at some point, I'm going to leave the party. And as I leave with another friend that I had attended the party with, and the group that I was socializing with, we get to the front yard and I heard some commotion behind me. And that group of men that they had almost gotten the altercation with earlier followed us out. So now I'm face to face with these guys on the front yard of this party. And it's apparent there's going to be a fight. You could tell that something's going to happen. And I had been at so many parties growing up where fights broke out at the end of the night and then everyone dispersed and went home. And that was pretty normal. 15, 16, 17, there was always a wrestling match. Usually there was somebody who had too much to drink and they said something dumb or acted irrationally and it turned into some type of fist fight. So when this occurred, I wasn't alarmed. I had seen this so many times. And when the fight broke out, it was really hectic and people were scattering everywhere on the front yard. And I took a couple steps back to assess the situation. I was very intoxicated and I was trying to just make sense of what was going on. And I saw a guy coming towards me like he was going to attack me. And as soon as we approached each other and I prepared to defend myself, I was immediately blindsided by what felt like a person, a group of people. I didn't know. All I know is I was being pushed back very quickly and we slammed into a car. And as we slammed into a car, I grabbed a hold of the person in front of me to try to maintain some type of control over the situation. And we slammed to the ground. And as we slammed to the ground, I thought I was getting jumped by those guys. I thought for whatever reason, they had saw me you know, standing alone or they had chosen me and they thought I was obviously a part of that other group and they were going to beat me up. So I, I assumed I was going to start getting kicked and punched in the head and that didn't happen. And I was just bear hugging this person on top of me, trying to get him off. Finally, after a couple of attempts to roll him over, I was able to. And as I stood up, I had one thought in my head, punch this guy before he punches you. He's going to attack you, defend yourself. So as I'm getting up, I threw two punches that kind of glanced off the side of his head. I didn't really hit him. 
And as I stood up and he didn't get up after me, he remained on the ground face down. And I, you know, split second thought, um, wow, that's odd. I didn't hit him hard. Did I hit him hard? Why is he not moving? I mean, this is rapidly occurring. And he didn't get up. And then I hear my friend who I had attended the party with, the one person I knew that I went to that party with yelling my name, John, let's go, let's go. And there's people screaming. It's pandemonium. And I start limping to the street where he's standing. My leg is all busted up in my lower back from being slammed into the car. And as I get to him in the street, we're below a lamppost and the light illuminates my face and body. And he looks at me in horror with these big ghastly eyes. He says, Sean, you're covered in blood. What the heck? And I look down and my arms are covered in blood. There's blood dripping off my face. and Like I'm covered in blood. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. He says, let's get out of here. And he starts running up the street. And I slowly limp after him up the street as people are coming outside, trying to figure out what happened. And I'm just getting out of there. I'm following him. And we go up the street. We hear sirens coming. And there's an open door off the street. And it's a laundry mat. And we enter it. And the cops come racing by like something out of a movie. You just hear the sirens. They're going to the party to see what happened. And he pulls out a shirt from the dryer. He says, put this on. You can't walk around like that. You're covered in blood. So I take off my button-up shirt. I put on the shirt that he had pulled from the dryer. And then we leave. And he had called a cab. We get in the cab and we drive home. And when we got to his house, we were both so intoxicated and in shock that we ended up just passing out. You know, We didn't even talk about what happened. And the next morning I woke up and there was just this horrible feeling. Like that wasn't a dream. That actually happened last night. And I knew that somebody had been seriously injured by all that blood. And I was trying to make sense in my head of what actually transpired, trying to put the pieces together from my memory. And I Googled house party on the Mesa. And sure enough, it says two individuals were stabbed at a house party on the Mesa. One remains in critical condition. And so I knew right then and there that my life was going to change forever. What I thought in my naive state was that the cops were going to come find me and question me and ask me who stabbed this individual, what happened and try to get me to point the finger at somebody. I had no idea that they thought I was the person who did it, that the individuals at the party who came out at the end of the altercation saw me getting up and this guy laying on the ground, and they assumed that I was the one who stabbed him. That's what they told the cops. So later that day, as you know, I'm trying to make sense of what to do and, and trying to talk to my friend and ask him what he saw, the SWAT team with rifles, with you know, the forensic unit, with dogs came and at gunpoint arrested me, and they charged me with attempted murder. Man, I that story, uh, and I know you've had to tell it not only in your book, but I'm sure countless times. I'm sure it doesn't. It's not easy to retell or, or uh, recount because it was such a turning point in your life. I kind of think I don't know if you've seen this movie, Sliding Doors. I think Sliding Door moments, like if something happened, just one thing happened different, what would happen to your life? So I'm wondering, as you reflect, and I'm sure you've had plenty of time to reflect. How would your life be different today if you didn't go to prison? If that didn't happen, if that if you didn't go to that party, if that night didn't happen, what would you be doing right now with your life? Yeah, I reflect on that often, you know, and I think that if I didn't go to prison, at best, I'd be living a mediocre life. I'd probably be addicted to drugs and alcohol or dead, you know, and I, I would probably be living a miserable life, to be honest with you, because at that time, my addiction was so powerful. The amount of pills and alcohol I was putting in my system on a daily basis, I probably would have went to sleep one night and not woken up. And that's the truth. And you know, what really broke my heart was when I came home from prison 
And I saw so many people who were doing good in their lives before, so many people that I could see tremendous potential in who had just diminished, right? They were like skeletons walking around, just devoid of passion, devoid of that spark they once had, battling their own addiction, battling their own demons. And I couldn't believe how many people were just going through the motions in their life. And I also lost a lot of people while I was away. A lot of the inner circle that I surrounded myself with when I was in my addiction, many of them passed away when I was gone due to their addiction or other circumstances. So it was honestly a blessing. You know, the individual that nearly died, he survived. And, you know, looking back, I feel that it was a blessing that I ended up going to prison. I didn't want anyone obviously to be hurt. And under those circumstances, it wasn't what I had wanted or what I would have wished for. But making sense of it all at the time, or or looking, you know, trying to make sense of it all at the time, uh, I couldn't see how that would serve me. But now, in retrospect, tremendously, it changed my life. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Okay. So, one of the things that fascinates me, Sean, about your journey is the fact that you don't play the victim game, you don't place blame, you're not looking to obsess over the past. Why? Or how have you been able to not do that? Did, has that always been the case? Or is that something that you've evolved and been able to not place blame for everything that's happened? Yeah. So for 10 years, that's what I did. For 10 years, I wouldn't accept you know, my dad going to prison, my mom leaving, and my world being turned upside down. So I was stuck inside this mental prison. I was tormented and afflicted by these emotions that I tried every day to escape from. By the time I got to that jail cell, I was exhausted. I was so exhausted. I didn't want to you know, hold on to those resentments. I didn't want to feel stuck. I didn't want to continue to live in that negative internal state. So how ironic is it that I ended up in a small cell with nothing where I found true freedom? You know, Being incarcerated gave me the chance to look within myself and reflect in a way I never had before. And it helped me to process a lot of things that I had been avoiding and healing. You know started to take place within me that allowed me to to feel peace and love for myself that I had lost, that I hadn't felt since I was that nine-year-old boy blowing out the candles, thinking about playing in the big leagues. And when that happened, it revolutionized the way I think, feel, and live my life. And nothing has been the same since. Mm. So you go on this journey of self-mastery in prison. You start really taking advantage of the fact that you can do a lot of things, even when you're behind bars. And I, I love that you said it's a bit ironic that to get your freedom, you had to be in a small cell. What are some of the things that you learned about yourself as you went on your journey of self-discovery, as you started to really add your own, what I'll call uh, personal development to your life? What, what did you learn, man? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, prison was probably the best place in the world for me to make that transformation. Because out here, we are so, you know, accustomed to our routines. We're so conditioned to live, act, and and be a certain way that making a shift and, you know, a paradigm shift on that level can be impossible at times. So in there, I was isolated and I had nothing but myself and my thoughts. And it allowed me to reflect and connect in a way I never had before. And what I realized is that. Yeah, I had parents who were addicted to drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I come from a broken home. I didn't go to high school. I didn't follow my dreams. I started playing back all the scenarios and events in my life 
And what I realized that, you know, I was a victim, a willing victim. You know, I was a willing victim of my circumstances. And at any point, I could have chose to break free and take a different route. I could have chose to go back to school and go to college and play sports. I could have chose to hang out with different friends. I could have chose to take a different course, but I didn't. And I had conditioned myself to live in a state of fear and doubt. And that self-doubt grew and grew and grew, and it paralyzed me. So now here I am sitting in jail, looking back on my wasted opportunities in life, all of my dreams that were shattered, and it devastated me. And I had so much regret for the way I'd chosen to live. I was more consumed by that realization than I was at the, real, the reality that I was going to face life in prison. I couldn't even connect with that notion at that moment. All I could do was think about that kid that wanted to live life so fully, who had those big, illustrious dreams who I'd given up on. And in that moment, I realized that it was because I had chosen to allow fear and doubt to hold me back that I had not lived the life I wanted, that I had merely been a shadow of the man at heart I knew I could be. And in that moment, I made a declaration to myself that I would never again experience that regret, no matter what. As long as I'm breathing, I'm going to give my all to becoming that person that I know I could become. And so from that moment forward, what I started to do was I started to take any little action that I could to reinforce the intuition and desire that I held within my heart. No matter how small the task was, it was irrelevant. It was about training my mind and creating that new perspective going forward that would serve me the rest of my life. So anytime that I had you know, a random thought pop into my head, hey, you should do this. It'll better you. Hey, you should try that. It'll help you. Previously, I would have said, nah, that doesn't matter. I'm in jail. I'm going to jail for 10, 20, 30 years. Why would I you know, read this book? Why would I do this? Why would I do that? So I had to confront that fear-based decision-making, that decision-making process that would hold me back. So what mm-hmm. I started doing is with this awareness, I started taking massive action on any little thing that I could do. And it started in that jail cell the first year, me looking up words in a pocket dictionary, right? I was reading, I was writing letters home, and I realized that I had neglected my education and I was a poor, uh, I, was, I was very poor at spelling, writing, and my letters were horrible. I was reading books and I didn't know what half the words meant. And I didn't like the way that felt. So I started looking up words in the dictionary and writing them down with their definition. And every week I would quiz myself. And then I would take those words and I would use them in my letters back home. And when I would speak to people on the phone, I would use these new words and I started improving my vocabulary. I started being able to articulate myself better. And just that small little action had a massive ripple effect because for the first time in 10 years, I was proving to myself that I could do something differently, that I didn't have to allow that fear and doubt to hold me back. Right. And it was that small action that transformed everything because then when I went to prison and I realized they had a college correspondence program where you could actually get an associate's degree while incarcerated, I was so excited. But guess what? I was also really scared because the old me would have said, Yeah, like the old me would have felt the desire to take the college courses because why not? Why not improve yourself? Why not get an education while you're here? But that old version of myself, that fear and doubt surfaced quickly. You don't need college courses. Why are you going to do that? You know, they're not going to benefit you. It's not going to help you. What if you're not good enough? What if you fail them? What if you can't manage everything? Like all these, these irrational thoughts and feelings would surface. So had I not taken the time in county jail to look up words in a dictionary, and showed, showed to myself that it was possible to make this shift, I wouldn't have taken the college courses. I ended up taking the college courses and I fell in love with psychology, with all these different topics that I had never really you know, learned about. And I was able to not only apply what I was learning 
to my environment in prison, but it helped me to actually get time off my sentence. They let me go home six months early because I was doing things to better myself. So once I started doing that, um, it was like a snowball effect. Then it was anything and everything I could do on a daily basis to improve who I was. And it just created this massive desire inside of me, like this relentlessness to pursue life and to become the greatest version of myself that I could ever become. And I know that dictionary holds symbolic meaning for you. You've carried it around. And I love that you brought that up because I was going to ask about it. The other thing that is kind of a defining moment for you is speaking. You actually had the opportunity to work with Toastmasters to hone your public speaking ability. I know that getting up in front of a room for anybody is hard. It's challenging. So what was it like when you were speaking? You, you tell a story in your book about this defining moment where you were facing your fears and putting yourself out there and speaking in public. What was that like and why was that so important for you? Yeah, so about two years into my sentence, the changes that were taking place within me and this shift that had occurred mentally, spiritually, you know, emotionally, I knew that I had to share it with people. I just felt like I had tapped into something so special that I wanted to help other people or share it with other people who were afflicted like I once was. So that thought surfaced early on. When we have those thoughts, they can be scary because then we're like, well, who am I to share this? Who's going to listen to me? But that seed was planted. So then as I went to another prison, there was a drug program. And if you have anything related to drugs from your past, they're going to enroll you in it. So I ended up being in this drug program. Nobody wanted to be there. But I had the mindset of, hey, I'm going to make the best of wherever I'm at. I'm going to do whatever I can to better myself. So I really immersed myself in the program. And the counselors and the guards who were a part of it saw that I was serious about my recovery. And I was open to talking about my past. And they wanted me to be an inmate counselor. So I accepted and I was working with other guys and talking about my past that required you to get on a podium in front of about a hundred inmates and share about your story and talk. And that's a very intimidating thing to do. Public speaking for most people is terrifying in itself. Now you get up on a stage in front of other inmates covered in tattoos, just mean mugging you because they're not happy to be there and they don't care what you have to say. Right. So the first time I did it, I was so nervous. My face was red. My voice was quivering. My hands, my palms were sweating. And, you know, I didn't do a very good job. I got the message out there and I actually got a couple of guys who approached me later saying, hey, that was good. I'm glad you got up there and said that. But overall, I was like, wow, this terrifies me. I'm not good at speaking. And part of me never wanted to do it again. And that's exactly why I knew I had to keep doing it, right? I knew I had to keep facing these fears and conquer every single one of them. So the next prison I went to, they had Toastmasters as a self-help group. And I couldn't believe it. The first time I went, I saw these other inmates giving very eloquent speeches, captivating speeches. And in that moment, I wasn't even in prison. I was watching a presentation and I thought, wow, I want to be able to captivate an audience with this heartfelt message that I possess in that same manner. So I started attending Toastmasters and I started getting better at speaking. I started sharpening my, my skills in public speaking. And it was something that I knew right then and there would serve me you know, in the future. I knew that every little detail about my time of incarceration, if embraced, if I conquered all those fears, they would all serve me at a later time in my life. Just like my education did. Just like looking up words in the dictionary that had given me confidence to take my college courses, that gave me confidence to write a book when I came home, right? So were the public speaking skills. So the last month that I was in prison, I was invited to speak at an event. And I would have never done it prior because it's intimidating. 
because all these people are there and who am I to get up on stage and speak? Why are they going to listen to me? I'm not good enough. All the fears and doubts that plague us. But I had been practicing and I felt confident and I did. I gave that speech and I got a standing ovation and the warden and people from outside the prison were there and there was over 250 people in attendance. And in that moment, it had just all come together. You know, I was a month from coming home and I had just proven to myself that, Sean, you can do this, that you, you have a purpose, you have a gift. And when you're pursuing it, you continue to excel and improve your life. And it was just, it was one of those moments in time that I'll never forget because it was almost like the universe or God was talking directly to me. Like, look at all these obstacles I put in your way. Each one that you faced and overcome, look what you've learned from it. It was showing me that if I continue down this path, I could continue to improve my life and turn those dreams I had into reality. Well, I'm so, I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of everything that came into your life would not only serve you while you're there, but you would be able to apply it once you leave. For example, I know that transparency, vulnerability are two really important things to you. And I'm curious, you're, you're now you're a life coach. Now you're helping others. And how has those two qualities, transparency and vulnerability that you, that you really adopted in prison, how have those served you as a life coach today? Yeah, those might be two, the two qualities that serve me the most in connecting with my clients and people that reach out to me for coaching. Because, you know, early on in my life, I would never talk about my problems. I wouldn't talk about my parents. I would just ignore it all. And I stayed stuck because of that. And those wounds within, they festered. They didn't heal. They expanded. So when I got incarcerated, I knew that I had been holding back. I knew that I had just been in denial my entire life. And I became willing to do whatever it took to become the person at heart I wanted to be. By the time I got to prison, I didn't care who it was or what it was. I was going to be transparent and authentic. Now, in prison, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't talk about the past. You don't show weakness. But that didn't stop me. I got on that podium in the drug program or in those small groups, and I talked about my past. And I did it in a way that empowered me. I wasn't a victim. I was taking control of my life by addressing these things. And that continued to facilitate the healing process that I went through. So I wasn't going to let anything hold me back ever again. If that meant talking about my past failures, my drug-addicted parents, whatever it was, that that stuff wasn't going to take control over me anymore. So I had been doing this, and it was therapeutic for me. And I learned how to do it in a way that was receptive by others. Who else to use this as a trial on than inmates who don't want to hear what you have to say? If I can get them to listen and be receptive and even come and reach out to me after and say, hey, I'm glad you shared that, then I could do that in front of any crowd. And so I just came home and I started sharing my story because I knew at heart that's what I had to do. And I wasn't worried about what other people thought. And I knew I could do it in a way that others could connect to, that they could relate to. I knew everyone had that feeling within of, am I holding back? Am I doing enough? I knew other people had pain from their past that they weren't healed from. So maybe if I told my story and how I was able to overcome those things, I could connect with others. They could relate to me and then I could help them or empower them to make the changes they truly wanted to make at heart. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, let's face it. When we are transparent, when we're vulnerable and we're authentic and we share our true self, others around us will lower their walls. They'll feel a connection to us. They'll feel like they can do the same thing. And as a coach, no better 
mood can be created than lowering the walls and making people feel comfortable. The other thing that I'm fascinated by is this idea of the role that habits play in our lives. And let's face it, when you're in prison, there's a certain amount of structure that goes into being in prison. I mean, you know this better than I, but I'm based on, you know, reading and the knowledge that I do have, there's a regimen, there's a structure. So how has that structure, that that habit forming framework that you had in prison, how has that transcended now that you're out and now that you're helping others build habits? How have you applied what you've learned or what you experienced in prison as a, as a coach today? Yeah. So prior to prison, I didn't have, you know, much structure. I didn't have that consistency in my life. And that's a problem. You know, in prison, I had a specific time I woke up. I had a specific schedule I followed. And I realized through that process that, you know, it would allow me to maintain control over the things within my sphere, right? We spend a lot of time worrying about things outside of our sphere of control. A majority of our time, most people. And totally. we, neglect, we neglect the stuff right in front of us that we could truly master and utilize on a daily basis to improve how we feel and how we're living our lives. So in prison, I put myself under a microscope. You know, I analyzed every little detail about myself and I became aware of this. So I started to give my all to anything that I could have an impact on. Anything that I could do to positively improve my life, I would do as often as possible. And over time, I started to develop that approach to life. I used that structure to form discipline that allowed me to really master those things. And the result was that I felt so much better about myself. I could go to sleep at night happy. I was happy in prison. I had internal peace and self-love because of my actions and my approach. When I said I was going to do something and I did it, and I did that 20 times in one day, that was the best feeling in the world. I would literally go to prison feeling like, wow, today was a good day, like happy because of that. And so coming home, I couldn't deviate from that mentality and approach, right? Oftentimes we do. Something served us at one point and we stopped doing it. And so just because I'm removed from prison doesn't mean those same principles don't apply. If anything, people out here are just lacking that discipline and that approach. And they wonder why they don't have the time management skills. They wonder why they have the stress. They wonder why they can't find the balance in their lives. And it's because they just don't focus on the things within their control and they're consumed by tomorrow, by yesterday. Uh, what if this happens? You know, they're creating this, these scenarios in their minds before they even transpire. So having those routines has allowed me to grow exponentially since coming home to tackle challenges head on and, and grow through them and to seize opportunities. That's because I'm ready for them. I have the right mindset. Internally, I'm creating that confidence, that feeling of I can when those things surface versus if I just wasn't consistent in my self-care, if I wasn't consistent at a wake-up time, if I wasn't taking action to improve myself, you know, an opportunity to become a coach or to write a book or to do something like it here and talk to you, I wouldn't be ready for it. So the routines and the habits are essential. And we have to really look at our day-to-day lives and say, how many things am I doing today to help me move towards the person I aspire to be? Am I embodying that person through all my actions, through my self-talk, through every little detail? Okay, why not if I'm not doing that? What am I doing? Where is my time being wasted? What are the things I'm doing on a day-to-day basis that are not serving me, that are keeping me stuck or even pulling me back? And with that reflection and with that honesty, we can start to actually construct a day that serves us. But for most people, they know this. They're not doing it, though. They know what to do. They're not doing it. So there's a deeper rooted issue here. There's a disconnect that's taking place from 
you know, where I want to be and where I'm at now. So that gap has to be bridged in my eyes before those routines and habits can really become effective and life-changing. Yeah, well, and people know what they need to do, but they don't make it happen. And they're spending, as you said, too much time worrying or thinking about the things they don't control instead of focusing on the things that they do control. So what do we do, right? If you're If you're coaching somebody, and they are struggling to form routines, daily habits, daily discipline to serve them, to create the, the type of daily framework that will allow them to achieve everything they want to achieve and, and have more control of their time than feeling like they have no time. What are some building blocks or frameworks or anything that would be valuable that you could share right now that you've seen or experienced work for your clients? Yeah, so you would think that would be a pretty straightforward question, right? It's actually much more complex. And that's why a lot of people struggle with consistency. So the first step is to understand why they can't be consistent. You know, a lot of times there's some internal block there. There's some limiting belief. I'm not good enough. It doesn't matter. Something that we're unconscious of that's impacting the way that we take action or don't take action. So that would be something to address. The next step is, well, what do you want? What purpose does this serve? We have to create a compelling vision that we can connect to every day that's going to inspire us to take those actions. If we don't have a detailed vision of the person that we want to be in, the lifestyle that we want to create, those actions, are we're not going to see the value in them. They're not going to make sense, right? And this happens consciously and unconsciously. So if we can create a compelling vision, and I'm talking about writing down detailed, like, you know, details about the life that you want. Like your declaration to the world, your legacy letter, I call it with my clients. What do you want to look back on at the end of your life? Let's create that energy and that excitement you had as a child, right? Let's think bigger than the biggest dreams you've ever had. Let's scare you a little bit with those dreams. Let's create something that is going to be so amazing to pursue that it's going to change the way you feel. Because that's where that internal connection comes from. If you create a vision, right, and you write it down, it's something unique and personal to you, and you want that just as much as I wanted freedom for my jail cell, right? Just as much as you want to breathe air, right? Um, and you create that emotional charge to that vision, that's going to serve you when it comes time to taking action. But if you don't have those things in place, it's always going to be just another thing, just another routine. Why do I want to wake up at five? Why do I want to go to the gym? Like, and you hear people describe it like that. Like, sure, how about yeah. I, get, I get to wake up at five. Right. I, I get to go to the gym. I'm creating this person that I want to be. This is an opportunity. This is a gift. This is a blessing. So it's the difference between I have to versus I get to. That's uh, you know, having that connection and that internal alignment to that vision. And that's crucial. So if somebody has that clarity, we can start to implement action. If they don't, if they lack that clarity, there's a disconnect. We have to address that right away. What I found is that introspection and writing helps you tremendously to create a new neural network, a new connection to that person you aspire to be. Whereas previously, you're just going to be living as your old self, trying to make changes with the same mindset that didn't serve you in the past. Trying to make changes without a new target to hit is not going to serve you. You're going to quickly revert back to that status quo. So let's say we work through that stuff. Now it's like, well, what do we do? How do I go from inconsistent action to crushing it every day of my life? And that's simple. We just start so small, man. We want to identify like three simple things that you can do every day for about a month straight that don't require a ton of effort and energy. It's just you saying you're going to do it and following through because that builds up confidence. Just like me with the dictionary, we want to identify a couple of things for you 
that you know you can do to the best of your ability. And then we want to help to make sure you do them every day. So schedule them in at a certain time where you know you can get them done. This might be as simple as, hey, I'm going to wake up at five. I'm going to drink 20 ounces of water. I'm going to make my bed. Okay. If you can do that for 30 days, guess what? Then we're going to have you getting up at five, drinking your water, making your bed, doing 10 minutes of meditation and going on a walk, right? Or some form of exercise. Before long, you're getting up at five, you're meditating, you're journaling, you're reading 10 pages out of your book and you're running two miles. And it's just about those baby steps. But you can't get to the person who's getting up at four and training for a marathon if you can't get up at five and make your bed, right? So we have to start small. We have to break it down so that it's so simple and easy that you look at those three non-negotiables and you think, I got that. I can do that. You know, can you do that to the best of your ability? Absolutely. And when you give your all to something and you're consistent and you follow through with your word, what that does to you on an internal level, the confidence and energy it creates, we can take that and use it to, to transform your life going forward. You can apply that to those big, scary goals later on in life. And it's going to be that same person, right? The same guy who looked up words in the dictionary, who went on to write a book. It's that same process. And I think a lot of times, we don't recognize that or we think, how is this going to help me, man? I want to be way over here. How is this little action going to help me? But how do you expect to go from struggling to this superior version of yourself overnight? It doesn't work that way. So we have to build up that belief that it can be done. We have to chip away at it. And before long, a month or two or three, you start to believe it. You're like, well, I'm doing this consistently. Maybe I can do a little bit more challenging of a thing tomorrow. Maybe I can add a little difficulty to my morning routine. And we just build, build, build from there. It's like routine stacking. You keep stacking routines. Start with the most basic, fundamental things like when you wake up, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? And then you can add on to that. Once you've built that habit, built that routine, you could add to it. The other thing you talked about that I want to dive a bit deeper on is this idea of having the vision and being really, really clear on the vision. You have a great YouTube video that breaks this down. You call it 2020 vision framework. And it's like part one is a brain dump. Part two is this future letter to yourself. And part three, you're actually writing your obituary. So I wonder if you could talk, take each one of those bit by bit. I know the brain dump, one of the most important pieces, correct me if I'm wrong, is after you've done the brain dump is to get really, really specific, which you just highlighted that, highlighted that a bit. But can you talk a little deeper on why it's important to write out the specifics after you've done this brain dump and maybe give some examples. Yeah. Yeah. That three-step process is so powerful. And a lot of times, you know, there's a feeling inside of us that we want more, but we can't even articulate what that would look like if it, it manifests in our lives. We actually have the answers, whether we realize it or not. And I tell my clients this all the time. You have the answers right now. We just help, have to help you extract them to get really clear on them so that we know how to place them in your life. And when we do that, and it comes from within, it's not me telling you what you need to do. It's you unveiling it for yourself. Something changes, right? There's a paradigm shift there because you're like, oh my God, you know, I'm going this way, but I really want to be over here in life. I have all these things I want to do. And that's where that spark can be reignited, but it has to come from within the individual. So having them sit down to do a brain dump is a real easy way to start getting them to unravel that truth within themselves. Because if I said, hey, you know, can you write a 10-page letter about your future and what you want? That's a daunting project. You're going to second-guess everything. You're not going to like take it seriously, maybe. You're not going to know how to go about it. But if I just say, hey, 
just take a minute, man, and write down some things you want to see in your future. Imagine if you wrote them down and they'd come to life. What would you write? No limitations, right? We want to ease the, the pressure and the stress on the individual. So by doing that quick brain dump, you know, it doesn't give us that time to doubt ourselves or think, oh, is this possible? Can I do it? It's like, no, rapid fire. What's coming in your mind? What's surfacing? Just write it down. It doesn't even matter if it's going to come true or not. Just write it down. And that's the first step in helping them to expand their mind and to go from that fear-based thinking of, of like limiting beliefs and can I do it? Am I good enough to more of a free creative thinking of like, what do I really want? What's that truth? Then from there, after that process, people feel really good. They're like, wow, look at all this stuff I wrote about. I wasn't even clear on these things. I didn't even know that I wanted to you know, start a company in Europe. I didn't even know that I wanted to run a marathon. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know these things about myself. So that self-discovery is so empowering. It's such a beautiful process that takes place. Then writing the, the five to 10 year letter, right? That helps to paint a picture. When we're writing, you know, using writing is such a powerful tool because we use things like, you know, uh, imagery, you know, our imagination. There's an emotional release or connection there, our limbic system, a different part of our brain. And then we're using the reasoning, the critical thinking part of our brain. So it creates like this new neural network that's very powerful and dynamic. And they're painting a picture with their words. You know, they're taking that brain dump and actually writing out how that would manifest in their lives if they could pick and choose, right? If you could pick and choose how these things would materialize in your life and when, what would that look like? Let's, let's create the ideal scenario for you. And when they start to do that, they don't realize, but they're going through vision creation. They're conjuring this image with their true thoughts and feelings with their own imagination. It's not a course that they bought. It's not a guru saying, do this, this, and that. It's their truth, right? And that's why when we get to the habits, the habits stick because it's personal to them. So once we go through that vision creation and we create the emotional charge, which is like your why, it's the same process. It's your why, but like very deep and personal, right? Like your children, your wife, not being a deadbeat dad. Like, let's go back to childhood. Let's go to the depths of that pain that you went through. Like, what don't you want to see in your life? Why do you have to do these things, right? We have to get like, I want to see tears in your eyes, man. I want to, I want to feel what you feel. And so if we can do that, waking up at five is nothing, right? Where you previously hit snooze every day because your bed was cozy, 5 a.m. now represents that new person that you want to create in that life. And it's like everything to you. And then every little detail about your day, right? We have to put that whole vision and that whole why into that action. Like five, 4 a.m. for me is my life. If I don't get up at 4 a.m., like for me, that's life and death. Truly is, right? I get up at 4 a.m. every day for my children, for my wife. I get up every day at 4 a.m. because I'm never going to be that guy in a jail cell again with regret how I lived. So that's my why. And that's powerful. And if we can help you to feel something personal to you to the same effect, that's going to transform your life and how you live going forward. So that's that process. The one part I didn't touch on is the obituary. And that can really trip people out. You know, when we talk about vision and goals, we think of five years, maybe 10 right? But who thinks about the end of their life, right? Who thinks about the way people are going to remember you as? And like, we do a little bit, but when you write about it and you realize, oh my God, that was my life. Like it's done. It, it changes your approach. It'll definitely change your approach and it can change your life in the blink of an eye. Mm. I, yeah. I can only imagine what that experience is like to write out what your obituary would be. Fascinating, fascinating activity to explore. And so I definitely encourage anyone to try. I know I'm going to try because, and I'm going to take out the word try. I'm going to do that. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing to do. And I love that framework when I saw that video. Um, I want to wrap up with action and exercise. 
So let's start with action because you say the fastest way to change your mindset and self-image is through action. And you just talked about that action because you could have the big vision, but if you don't take the action, then the vision is just in your head. Why is it that you believe action is so important to help create that mind shift, mindset shift and that self-image shift that you need? Yeah, because the action is what actually sends a signal back to your brain that creates that neural network. So if you're the person that says, I'm going to get up at five every day and go to the gym and you sleep in, your brain's getting the signal that, you know, I'm, I'm Joe, I don't go to the gym, I'm lazy, whatever it is, right? You right. reinforce that every day. That becomes a part of who you are. So that pattern is easier for you to fall into versus getting up and actually going to the gym. We have to create, you know, a new neural network that we can actually like tap into automatically over time that's going to serve us in going where we want to go in our lives. So the action is essential. That's what sends the signal back to your brain that says, oh, I did this or I didn't do it, right? And that also proves to yourself that, you know, I, I can do it. And it, it creates either confidence or self-doubt over time, depending on what course of action you're following. So we all are confronted with, you know, two very different energies in life. Our truth, right, which is all intuition, which is our dreams, which is passions and desires, and then the fear and the doubt and, you know, all those things that plague us. But oftentimes, we reinforce that through action or inaction to the point where that process, that fear-based decision-making is very much a part of who we are and how we react in situations, right? So we have to change that and we have to start reinforcing the intuition, our truth, and pursue our dreams in every little detail. So as soon as you have a thought, like it could be something so simple, man, I should pick up that piece of trash. I should do those dishes as I'm watch walking by the sink. Or I should reach out to so-and-so. I haven't talked to them for a while. Every time we have that pure thought, that intuition, that's, that's a genuine part of us. That's a message to us that's trying to direct us towards the person we want to be and create the life that we want. So we have to take action on it immediately. Because if we don't, you let like 10 seconds pass, a minute, we're not doing it, right? I'll do it later. Oh, it doesn't matter. They don't want to hear from me anyway. Uh, someone else will get that trash. I'll do the dishes later. Imagine how many times that scenario plays out in a day, in a week, in a year, right? I use this term all the time with people. Who are you and who are you becoming? It's every little detail that creates who you are and who you're becoming. And that's what I discovered in jail. It didn't matter what I was doing. It was the effort that I put into it and how often I was doing it that was going to determine who I became. So it was every little thing. And we lack that awareness out here at times. And we allow precious opportunities to pass us by just because we don't realize how important they truly are. So the person that picks up that piece of trash on the ground versus the person that doesn't, in time, there's going to be a massive difference. If that person continues to follow through with those two different courses of action and you could follow them through their lifetime, watch the difference in the outcomes they get in the life that they live. It's that, it's that serious and it's those small little subtle things that we overlook that we have to truly like grasp and take to heart and understand how important they are. Well, okay. So there's this awareness piece. That's part one of it is acknowledging and recognizing that that piece of trash is there, but then there's the action piece. How do you, let's just assume that we could get to the awareness piece. How do you get to the action piece? What, what advice, if somebody says, you know what, I am hearing this voice, my instincts are telling me to do the dishes or telling me to do this or tell me, but I, for whatever reason, am not immediately taking action. What, what advice would you give that person? Yeah, I'd ask them, okay, so you're having this, this feeling, this desire to take this action and you're not. 
So how many times do you think that happens throughout a day or a week? Right? I'd ask them that. So, okay. So imagine if we could fast forward and you're 85, you're, you're 90, you're 95, you lived you know, a long life and you're looking back on all your memories, all your decisions, all your choices. Do you think you want to look back and think, man, I was that person that kind of just like drifted through life. You think that you're going to look back on all those little things and think, I'm glad I never picked up that trash or went above and beyond. I'm glad I kind of just took the easy way out. How do you think that'll make you feel? Do you wish that you could go back and maybe did things differently? Or are you going to be okay with that? Right? And immediately, most people say, no, like, I don't want to look back with regrets. I want to know I gave my all to sure. my life. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You got to paint that future picture for them because that's where the pain resides. It's, it's that future realization that, oh my God, I just let my life pass me by. Why didn't I live differently? We have to connect to that pain now to change our actions. So we got to paint that picture. I would then ask him, imagine you at 95 looking back and, and remembering that pivotal moment in your life where you became aware of like this intuition inside you and you wanted to act upon it. Remember that first time you faced the fear and you took action anyway? Do you remember how that made you feel? And then you kept doing it. And I, I get them to paint that picture. Like imagine the life that that person creates and the memories and the experiences with their family and the stuff that they did with their clients or in their industry. Which person do you truly want to be, man? And like we have to help them in that moment see how that trivial little piece of trash is symbolic of their entire life and their character and everything going forward. You have to help them see that and feel that. Got it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I love looking at it from the lens of what you would feel and see as an old person looking and reflecting back on your life. So I want to end with this. You are somebody who has challenged yourself physically. You care deeply about the power of exercise. And you actually say that your inner confidence comes with exercise and not just you, but people in general. Why is that the case? And what would you like to share about the importance of exercise, wrapping everything up that we've shared uh, so far? And you shared some amazing insights and, and nuggets of wisdom. Why is exercise such a vital part of this whole recipe? Yeah, I mean, it's multifaceted. You know, there's so many benefits of exercise. Uh, you know, physiological benefits. You know, you, you improve your health, right? You improve blood flow. Uh, you build muscle strength, which supports, you know, your, your skeletal system. You build bone density, which facilitates longevity. Like, you're going to live longer and feel better if you move your body. That's science. It's proven. It increases blood flow to your brain, which helps speed of thought, which prevents things like Alzheimer's and all these stuff that plague us later on in life. So from a survival standpoint, exercise is a necessary part of your life. For me, it's all about the, the mental and the spiritual benefits, right? Because that's symbolic. Every day we do things that we don't necessarily want to do that are challenging, that we'd, we'd rather avoid, right? Because it's more comfortable to stay inside where it's warmer in our cozy bed. But do you feel better when you face that fear and that challenge and you go to the gym and work out anywhere, or you go on that run in the cold and you come home and, and you know that you didn't want to do it, but you did it anyway, versus that person who stayed in bed, who kind of feels guilty and remorseful of that. That's where the, the true transformation takes place. It's us doing things consistently that challenge us to be better. Because when we do that, we literally evolve. When we face that type of adversity, we are forced to adapt when we otherwise wouldn't. So if you do that on a daily basis, imagine the mindset that you're creating and how that's going to carry over into every part of your life, right? So it's going to benefit every part of your life because you're that person that despite adversity, despite obstacles, you believe in yourself 
that you can overcome them because you've been proving it to yourself every day in these subtle actions. So exercise, routines, you know, being disciplined, that all stems from having something you want to do, facing adversity to overcome it, and then that intrinsic growth that takes place. And when you do that consistently and you channel that energy internally, you can then carry it with you everywhere you go in life, right? And you're creating this person that can weather any storm. You're prepared for, you know, when your spouse gets diagnosed with breast cancer, when your son's sick, when some travis like tragedy happens, like you're that rock at home, the person they need. Then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, when opportunities open up that scare you, right? When you get a chance to pursue that new career, that new business venture, and you're kind of timid, you've been proving to yourself every day that you can face these things and come out, you know, um, on top. You can persevere. So we're preparing for those future outcomes with the way we live our life today. And exercise is a way that builds that intrinsic growth that is going to serve you because you don't have to do it. You're not getting paid to do it. You know, there's no direct benefit, right? It's that intrinsic growth that we're seeking that creates the fulfillment and the energy and mindset that's going to help us to live a, a more productive, a more fulfilling life in its entirety. Yes. And thank you so much for sharing your entire story to learn more about you. I know you could go to seanmichaelcrane.com. Your book is Prison of Your Own. You're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Where else can they find you or work with you as a life coach? Where else would uh, they be able to get more of this wisdom from you, Sean? Yeah, I, I don't know if you mentioned I have a website, seanmichaelcrane.com. You can connect with me directly there. I also have access to free courses, uh, access to the book, and I just released the audiobook. So that'll be available on that site as well. Nice. Yes. Uh, I, that's what I use. I'm a big audiobook guy. So I just listened to your book on audiobook, on audio, on Audible, which was amazing. From a childhood that had its own share of ups and downs, you had some uh, positive role models and some role models that were maybe not as good, ultimately went and made some decisions as a teenager and young adult, led you in a wrong place at the wrong time, ultimately spending time behind bars. But your story is a story of redemption, of resilience. Your story is one of empowering other people to make the most of their life. Perspective matters. When you think about perspective and you think about how you can look at your life through the lens of what it would be had you not had that event happen in your life versus what it is today and how you're able to impact other people. It's a powerful proposition to know that because of this one incident, you're now able to pour into other people and help other people, not only through your coaching, but from coming on shows like this and others to share your story. Thank you, Sean, so much for being on Inside Out. Thank you for having me, man. It was an awesome experience. I really appreciate it. 